Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I'm delighted to have on our show today, Gleb Zaporsky, CEO of the Boutique Future of Work Consultancy, Disaster Avoidance Experts. Gleb helps leaders use hybrid work to improve retention and productivity while cutting costs. And as we're now in Mental Health Month, he's also going to tie the questions of working from home, working from the office, or hybrid to mental health and well-being. So, Gleb, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me back, Maureen. That's wonderful to be back. Your expertise is always welcome, so we're delighted to have you as a recurring guest. Thank you, Maureen. So how do traditional business gurus argue that remote and hybrid work negatively impacts employees' mental well-being and work-life balance and contrast it with others who have a very differing point of view? Traditional business gurus like, let's say, Malcolm Gladwell, he's a known outspoken critic of people working anytime remotely. For example, he said in a podcast interview, and I'm quoting here, There's a core psychological truth, which is we want you to have a feeling of belonging and to feel necessary. I know it's a hassle to come into the office, but if you're just sitting in your pajamas in your bedroom, is that the work life you want to live? Unquote. And he talks about how remote work is just not satisfying people's work-life balance and how it's bad for people's mental well-being. And you really need to come to the office to feel connected, to feel a sense of community. And that's what a lot of business gurus say. They say you really need to come to the office, otherwise you just won't be connected. And we all know from a mental health perspective that feeling connected to others is indeed important for mental health and well-being. That's kind of one side of the story. The problem with that perspective is that they're comparing working remotely to an ideal state of perfect, wonderful mental health and mental well-being. That's not the reality of what happens. So if we think about coming to the office, that is a challenging experience. And by the way, just to be clear here, I helped 23 organizations by now transition to long-term hybrid work and remote work. I wrote a book called Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams on this topic. And I'm not at all against in-office work. In fact, the large majority of my clients, I recommend that they adopt a hybrid work modality. So meaning people spend some time in the office and some time remotely. So I'm just reporting what the data said and what some people who want everyone to be in the office five days a week, they're getting it wrong simply from the perspective of mental well-being. And we can talk about other perspectives. When you're talking about people coming to the office, it's not simply a state of grace and idealism. What you're doing is you're having the commute and the commute is a big, big challenge. So you look at statistics by Census Bureau, it found that People spend about an hour on the commute every day in the United States. And that's 55 minutes of that time is simply the driving time. And then if you add all the time putting on your clothes, getting ready, getting your stuff into your laptop bag and so on, transitioning out of the house and transitioning to the office, getting through security and so on, and then doing all of that in reverse, that's over an hour per day. And if you're in a city with a more busy commute, like New York City, Los Angeles, San Francisco, that's going to be closer to two hours, an hour each way. So if you think about that time, that is the most miserable time (laughs) for most people in their day, their commuting time. It's stressful. It's effortful. It's very, very draining and disheartening. It's a big, big problem for people. So that is a huge drain on people's mental well-being. So all the time that you spend commuting is a big, big trade. So it's not only a waste of time, 
And that's definitely a waste, but it's also a waste of mental well-being, of energy. And of course it's dangerous. People get into accidents and all that. And then once you come to the office, it's also not the most healthy environment. You don't have the comfort of your home where you can be set up the way you like it, where you don't have fight over the thermostat. You can have the music that you want. You can have a healthy meal as opposed to a sad office lunch. So all of that is an additional issue that harms people's well-being compared to spending their time working remotely when they're in the office. So there's definitely some benefits to being in the office, but there's from the social connection perspective, but there's a lot of demerits. And that's why five days in the office is a serious problem from the perspective of people's mental well-being and physical well-being. There's no real data showing that if you compare people in the office to people working at home, that they're going to be better off if they work in the office Monday through Friday, nine to five. So look at a survey by Cisco. Obviously it's a big company. They don't have any particular stake in any outcome. They surveyed 28,000 people and most respondents, 78% said that spending some time working remotely substantially improved their well-being. Of the small number who's reported that their work-life balance has not improved or even worsened, the main reason was because of the difficulty of disconnecting from work. And so much of the time that people improved their mental well-being, it stemmed from time saved not needing to commute and having a more flexible schedule. You said trouble disconnecting from work. Yes. Does that mean that if I work at home, I don't quit when I should quit, I just keep on going and I check my Slack and I'm engaged in a way I would not be if I were in the office and then left. That is indeed the case. So we see that when people are working remotely, hybrid workers, the days that they're working not from the office, they tend to work quite a bit longer than the days they work in the office. There's a reason why remote work results in higher productivity. So we definitely see very clearly that people, when they work remotely, are more productive. And a big reason for that is because they work longer hours. And they do that for a number of reasons. First of all, they don't have to have a commute, which is that's a big reason why they work more time when they're working remotely. Another big reason is that they have more flexibility. So if they have more flexibility, they can work more around their schedule, which means they can take breaks to do house chores, take care of their kids, and overall, they spend more time working and they're able to work more when their energy levels align with their work time. So they don't have to work Monday through Friday, simply nine to five. Some people who are morning doves, they can work in the morning, you know, work from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. or something like that. Others who are night owls, they start working at 11 p.m. and finish working at 8 p.m. So people work different hours, but overall they work more. One of the complaints I hear from executives is uh, so-and-so is not working. They're allegedly working from home, but I drove by and they were mowing their lawn or they were, I ran into them at the grocery store. It sounds like you're counterbalancing that with, I'm still working 10 hours a day, but I run out in the middle of the day to weed my garden while I'm on a phone call. Hmm. And so it may appear to a stranger that I'm not working, but in fact, I am fully paying attention to the thing I'm engaged in. Yeah. What leaders tend to get wrong is misunderstanding the nature of work. Even leaders, they don't spend all of their time working, actually working in the office. From observation studies, 
when you look at the time that people actually spend working when they're in the office, it's 36 to 39% of their time is actually spent doing work for the company. The rest of the time is spent taking breaks, doing social chit chat, you know, shopping in Amazon, checking social media, reading the news. If they're being forced to return to the office for no reason, then maybe looking for another job. So people don't spend all of their time in the office working and they don't spend all of their time in the homework. They take breaks, they do chores, they do whatever other activities they need to do. But there's no question that overall people are more productive when they work remotely. So if you take a look at the time when people are working in the office, you can compare people on the same role. I'll give you an example. There was a study on a company called trip.com, which as you can guess from the name is a large travel agency. And there was a randomized control trial, which was a gold standard in research. And they worked with Stanford University to assign half of their staff members to work half of their work week, about half their work week remotely and the other half to work Monday for Friday, nine to five in the office. And this includes people like programmers, marketing people, HR, accounting, and so on, design people. What they found as a result of all this was after six months, the half the people who worked remotely part of their time, so a hybrid schedule, they had 35% better retention. 35%. I mean, that's incredible. You, you and I know that, <laughs> you know, if you get 5% better retention, that's great. But this intervention results in 35% better retention. That's marvelous. And they found that people who are working remotely were quite a bit more productive. It's hard, somewhat hard to measure that for someone like, let's say, an HR person or a customer service person, but they were able to measure it for programmers who wrote 8% more code that was accepted as quality code compared to the same roles of programmers who worked in the office for six months, full time in the office. So very much clear that these programmers were more productive. And what they found was that these programmers, they were working less during the standard hours, Monday through Friday, nine to five, but they worked more outside of these standard hours. And they more than made up for taking breaks, doing household things during these standard hours by working outside of these standard hours and getting more stuff done for the company. And that speaks to the fact that probably for the industrial modality of working like we used to do in the factory nine to five, we trans simply transitioned from that to working in the office nine to five. But the working in the office is not the same thing as working in the factory. We work with our brains much more. Our brains get tired. And that's why it's very beneficial for our brains to take a break and go weed the garden or go to the store or post on Facebook or something like that. We relax during that time and then we're able to focus more on our primary work tasks and do more work and be more productive and produce more quality work outside of that period if we work more flexible hours. Not unlike the history of human beings that the Industrial Revolution is only a short part of human history, for the rest of our tenure as humans on the planet, we worked, quote, from home in essence. People were craftsmen and tradesmen and they worked down the street and they would go work in the blacksmith shop for a while and then they would rest because it was hard physical labor. Mm -hmm. My grandparents worked on a farm. They didn't necessarily go out and plow for eight hours. And certainly they didn't go out and plow for eight hours a day, 300 days a year. Hmm. Their tasks ranged. They would do maintenance work in the evening. The work changed in the winter. Tasks varied and energy varied depending on what was required. 
And it seems that given the opportunity to work hybrid, at least, we are then able to do a similar variation where I can manage my energy, not just my tasks. And if you think of that, the brain is a muscle, just like any other muscle. If you try to do physical exercises for nine hours a day, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., you will get really tired and you'll be much less productive with physical exercises by the end of the day if you're doing them. But if you take breaks to do something else besides the physical exercises, you'll be able to do overall more physical exercises throughout the day, whatever you're doing. So it makes a lot of sense. This brain is the same way. If you take breaks and you pace yourself and do various tasks throughout the day, you will be able to get overall quite a bit more done and be more productive than if you are just doing the same stuff with your brain Monday through Friday, nine to five or eight to five. So just like your grandparents. Well, and they worked, I'm sure, long hours because they were up mm -hmm. milking cows and taking care of chickens and they did stop to eat because it was hard physical labor. In the summer, I assume the work did not stop until the sun went down, which was well past 5 p.m. Mm -hmm. They had trouble separating work, too, from <laughs> life because they lived on the farm and they did what was required. I think there was less of a concept of work life for people who are involved in farming. So if we go back to that historical period before the Industrial Revolution, the concept of work separate from life resulted from factory labor from people being part of a factory labor. Because when people were farmers, there was not much separation between work and life. Your work was your life. Your life was your work. Are we going to return to that, do you think? Or is there an opportunity to return to that as we are either in a hybrid setting or fully remote that there's a lot I can do? I happen to be a night owl. The joke is like folks working in India, you just send something to me and I get it done overnight and it'll be in your in basket in the morning. Hmm. For me, that freedom to work different hours does allow me in some ways to balance my life. There's no question that we're moving toward that more with remote work, because with remote work, people are able to work more flexible hours. So I mentioned I helped 23 organizations transition to hybrid remote work. What I set up in almost every organization is a standard common time, something, let's say, like 11 to 3 p.m. Eastern time. And that would be a common time when people are expected to respond quickly to emails, to Microsoft Teams messages and so on and being able to be available for Teams calls very quickly. That's a common time. Then otherwise, if you're a night owl, you can start your work at 11 p.m. and then finish your work at 8 p.m. or finish your work at, at midnight. It doesn't matter what you do as long as you're available for other people during those common hours. Other people for morning owls, they'll start their work at 6 a.m. and finish their work at 3 p.m. or whatever they want, again, depending on what they're doing. And that gives people much more flexibility in their life and helps them align with their energy levels and allows them to do chores, doctor's visits, play with their kids, elder care, whatever they need to do during the other parts of their life. So their work gets much more intermingled into their life. And that's definitely something we're moving toward. What I hear very often from executives when I tell them this is a feeling of real disquiet and concern because executives on average tend to have more difficulty with having this enmeshment of their work and life. Not everyone, but on average, I see executives much more frequently having trouble 
with this idea that, oh, work is going to be intertwined with life. So that is a challenge where their employees are much more welcoming of this more flexibility and intertwinement of work-life balance versus the executives. And that makes it more challenging, of course, for executives to have an effective hybrid policy for their teams. Why do you think executives have that issue? Because I hear something similar and I wonder if it's I got here by doing this or if it's a personal style that they happen to be in some cases so incredibly dedicated that, of course, they're not going to do their grocery shopping on Monday afternoon. No, I think it's mainly age. So we see that surveys show that executives tend to be those who are 50, late 40s, 50s, something like that. Uh, we see surveys very clearly showing that those over 50 have more struggles with working remotely. They've spent their whole career. They're successful. So if you think about the executives, they are successful due to their ability to work in the office for, you know, 30 years, 40 years before the pandemic. And they've risen to that level. So they know how to do that. And they're very comfortable doing that. And they've learned how to manage by walking around and sensing patterns that are going on in the office. And they know what people are doing, or at least they think they know what people are doing when they walk around and manage them. And so executives feel comfortable with that situation. They feel uncomfortable, not everyone, but most executives feel less comfortable with managing their teams when they do it through a video conference screen and they do it through email and so on. They want that hands-on feeling. And so given their experience and their time in the office and their role of management, which has to do with, you know, people overseeing them, they have much more trouble with separating with the idea that, hey, you can enmesh your life with your work because their goal is to manage other people and they have a lot of experience doing it. Whereas when you look at overall people who are experienced but are not in the role of managing people, so technical experts, they're more okay with remote work, even if they're older. And of course, the people who are actually most desirous of working remotely, they are actually millennials. So it's not simply Gen Z want to work remotely all the time. Millennials are the ones who want to work remotely most, partially because Gen Z still wants some in-office mentoring, and they appreciate that. But they don't want to have full-time in-office work. They want hybrid work. And whereas millennials, they are very, very comfortable spending much more time working remote. On average, still wanting hybrid, but many, many more millennials, something like 40-ish percent, want to work full-time remotely. Something you said really sparked my interest, the idea that executives, when they're walking around, they're sensing what's happening. Mm -hmm. We don't often talk about that, that that's infected. I am picking up data and making sense of it. Mm -hmm. For the people that you teach to work in a hybrid setting and manage and lead in a hybrid setting, do you teach tools for the leaders to actually make sense of what's happening and change their behaviors? My partner runs an organization during the pandemic. They had very different meetings. He had more one-on-ones. He spent more time asking people how they were doing. He had to conduct his work differently, mm -hmm. and he does happen to prefer being in the office, but they have not mandated everyone go back. They have a hybrid setting. For him, that in-person connection helps him function better with his people, and he is over 50. So right. 
he is certainly progressive in his thinking and behavior, but that sense-making in person is something that was very helpful. And yet I'm wondering for organizations we're coming back where the people just aren't going to do it, where you're going to lose competitiveness. Mm -hmm. Are there skills and tactics that really allow the leaders to get comfortable with more remote or more hybrid? Yeah, I definitely have to say that your partner fits the pattern more broadly of what leaders on that age category tend to have the perspective of, oh, you know, I'm better managing people when they're in the office and so on. So that's definitely something to think about. And there are a number of tactics that I teach. The most important one is based on performance evaluation. So the performance evaluation people are used to is the once annual large performance evaluation. Go for your goals for the year, see how you did and so on. And you're rated up based on that. That is a problem. The usual thing that managers evaluate their people based on the rest of the year is their office presence. Are you coming to the office and do I see you working? And are you coming there, you know, at least the same time as I am, ideally earlier, are you leaving later after me? You know, you're the most dedicated. I'll give you the projects and the promotions. And of course, the challenge with that is that you run into proximity bias, which is in a hybrid environment, there's a tendency to have preference for people that you see more often and you build a better relationship with them and you give them promotion, you give them opportunities and you kind of forget about the people who you don't see as often who are maybe full-time remote or coming in less often on a hybrid schedule. And so that is a huge problem. That is a real serious issue for managers and managers acknowledge this. We have extensive surveys something like 72% of managers saying that they are kind of forgetful of people who spend more time working remotely and they're less likely to promote them and give them responsibilities. That's a big, big problem. And so what I teach managers to do is to focus on changing the performance evaluations from that once annual performance evaluation to brief, small, weekly performance evaluations in one-on-ones. So the good managers already do weekly one-on-ones. That's a kind of a best practice anyway, to do weekly one-on-ones with your, your direct reports. And now it's especially important. But the key thing of weekly one-on-ones in the performance evaluation is to integrate an element of performance evaluation into the one-on-ones. That's critical. Now, this is an excellent strategy because it gives everyone face-to-face time with the supervisor and talking about substantive relevant issues about where they are in the company, what they are doing well, what can be done better, and they know where they stand at all times. So they have a lot of psychological safety. That's very helpful to address that proximity bias. So they don't have to worry about their career growth. They know where they stand and compare to others because there's a promotion evaluation system and they know that promotion will be based on that. So it's fair and objective. This is a system that really helps to address the skill aspect of how do managers lead effectively in hybrid settings. For some people, this is going to seem like dramatic overkill. There were certainly leaders who say, I haven't talked to my boss for months. So they're not going to have a weekly performance meeting. They might have a monthly conversation. I'm assuming the frequency and content of these meetings varies by level in the organization. Yeah, here I'm talking about rank and file teams. It's important for rank and file teams to have those weekly meetings when you're talking to a senior executive once monthly is the right pace. What's the duration of a meeting? Does that vary as well? 
you set it for half hour. It's often going to be over in 10 to 15 minutes, but I like to set half hour in case the challenges and so on go for longer. If it's going to be once monthly, then you'll set it for longer than you'll set it for an hour instead of a half hour. But for the weekly meetings, setting it for a half hour, you'll usually complete it within 15 minutes. You also talked about that frequency creates psychological safety. People may have an uneven understanding of what is it and how do you get there? Psychological safety is a feeling that you are allowed to make mistakes and you're supported and you're trusted by members of your team and that you know where you stand in relation to members of your team. You're confident in their support for you. You're confident in your supervisor's support for you. So you're safe in taking initiative, taking some risks, making some mistakes, and knowing that overall you'll be rewarded for taking those risks and you'll be supported and protected from being punished for taking wise risks. So supervisors create that by giving consistent feedback, creating a, a space for people to ask questions, and in that space for people to ask questions, actually responding constructively. Right. So in that one-on-one -on -one with a performance evaluation, when you're running into problems, that they would not castigate you for having the problem. But they would coach you on the problem and how to address it. And of course, you can bring up problems, you can ask questions. That is the time for you to do so. So that's why it creates psychological safety, that you can feel comfortable with your supervisor and you know how they are evaluating you as a result of it. So that you see that, you know, if you have a problem, they're not going to say, well, you rated yourself a three on, you know, a one to four scale, but you had this problem. So therefore I'm going to downgrade you to a one. That doesn't create psychological safety. What creates psychological safety is saying like, okay, so you rate yourself as a free. I know you had this problem, but here's how you solved it. And here's how you learned from it. Maybe here's how you'll do better next time. Yeah, this free is great because you had this problem. You learned from it. You'll do better next time. And yet the supervisor still has to be able to give constructive, you missed the mark kind of feedback. Of course, but you don't decrease their performance. So that, that that's where the key is. Does the boss decrease your performance evaluation because you acknowledge the problem? Well, maybe then I'm not going to be acknowledging problems to my boss if I know that he's going to be decreasing my performance evaluations if I bring up problems to him, right? So that is the kind of thing that you want to avoid. It's a tenuous balance between safety and helping people recalibrate so that they can, in fact, grow and develop. Yes, of course. So if someone is miscalibrating how well they're performing, then you can discuss what the expectations are. That's when it really helps to have three to five goals. Well, okay, so here are the goals. It seems that you've not met these goals. You are rating yourself a little bit too highly given that you've not met those goals. That doesn't undermine psychological safety because it has a clear standard and you haven't met that standard. And psychological safety is undermined when you acknowledge a problem and then the boss jumps on you for acknowledging a problem. As we're talking about mental health month and well-being, mm -hmm. are there other tactics that, especially in a hybrid work setting, help promote well-being? Because we've read about the loneliness that for some people working remotely can cause them to feel a little more isolated and alone. This loneliness epidemic is something that's somewhat overblown. So let me go back to the Cisco survey. 64% reported that they saved at least four hours per week by spending some time working remotely. 26% saved eight or more hours because of the young commute. Now, what did they do with that time? 
the top choice of 44% of the people was spending more time with family, friends, pets, which addresses isolation, of course. So 74% reported that working from home improved their family relationships. 51% said it strengthened their friendships. So the idea of social isolation has been mythologized by people like Malcolm Gladwell. We definitely see more social isolation from work colleagues, but more bonding and connection to family members. So that's first thing to realize. Again, the problem of social isolation has been greatly overblown by people who say, well, everyone needs to go back to the office Monday, Friday, nine to five to prevent social isolation. So that's one issue. Now, there definitely are things that you can do for social isolation an actual problem. So I've looked a lot of internal data. I did a lot of internal surveys. The biggest problem from perspective of social isolation tends to be with younger people who don't have as many family members with their own family, and they have challenges connecting to people. And so for them, work was their primary way of connection for younger people. For many, many younger people, work was really key. And so they do have some more social isolation. So that is an issue. So what's really well for that is to establish mentoring programs. Very helpful to do that. So what does a mentoring program look like? So a mentoring program for hybrid team should have at least two mentors for each mentee. One should be a senior person from the person's own team who would help them with team onboarding, knowing what the team dynamics are like, knowing what the organizational dynamics are like, what they should actually be doing their actual tasks. And then you want someone from outside the team. Mm. Why do you want someone from outside the team? Well, what the research shows is that team members who spend time working in a hybrid modality establish strong connections with members of their own team, but compared to people who work in the office, they have weaker connections to those from outside their teams. And so that is a problem for people developing their career in the organization because developing your career in the organization depends on inter-team times rather than intra-team time. So it's not within the team, but between teams. It also helps the organization because it facilitates innovation to have these weak ties with people from other teams because you can have more innovative ideas when you're talking to people from outside your own team and the immediate projects in which you're working. It's also quite helpful to establish group mentoring. So group mentoring would mean young people would come to the office they would work for a couple of hours with a group of four to six other young people. So recently hired ones and someone who is senior to them. So someone who's really experienced. So they would be working on their own projects, but they can ask questions of the senior person at any time that they're working on their projects. And the thing is, if they have a question, then other people probably in that group also have questions, but they are kind of shy about asking them. And so then everyone can learn the answer at the same time. And the senior person can take a little bit of time to explain it and give some context. And that provides on-the-job training, immediate on-the-job training to everyone. Beautiful. So you talked about two kinds of mentoring and then group mentoring, and you were going into the next recommendation? Having social anchors in the office. So one of the biggest problems that people have with coming into the office is coming to the office and only being able to see one or two people because the rest of the people might be hiding behind closed doors or they might just have their headphones on and be doing head down work. And so no one feels accessible. And so they're coming into the office and they're like, well, why am I coming into the office? And the point of coming to the office is for collaboration and socialization. 
and connection to other people. And so I'm not able to get that. Well, that's unfortunate and that kind of sucks. And so in order to address some of that social isolation, it really helps not simply to have that common time, which I mentioned at 11 to 3 p.m. when people are expected to be available, but to have certain social anchors. And by that, I mean, for one of my clients, we set up lunches. So people at noon on Wednesdays and Thursdays, there's a common time for people to have lunch. So people go to their room, they get box lunch, and they're expected to hang out and not just, you know, flee back to their office and they eat it behind the desk. They're expected to hang out and socialize. That is the time for people to connect with each other. So that is a specific anchor that helps people connect with each other. On Mondays and Tuesdays at that client, we have uh, cookies and coffee. So that's at 3 p.m. People are expected to come there and socialize and hang out. And there are specific for leaders. There's a leadership breakfast on Thursdays. So leaders specifically get together and connect with each other at that breakfast. So that peer relationship. So that is another very valuable tool to have social connections in a way that's not forced, in a way that's not super structured, and the one that creates more spontaneous connections. Beautiful. Thank you. What other recommendations are working with your clients that we may not have considered? Another thing to think about is a variety of co-working, which I call virtual co-working. And that is when you are working at home, so on a day when you're not coming to the office, dialing into a video conference call with members of your own team. So let's say a six to eight people team. So you dial into a video conference call and the goal is to work on your individual tasks, not work on collaborative tasks with others. You're not going to be chatting during this time. So you're just dialing to this video conference call and take 30 seconds to share what your individual project is that you'll be working on for the next hour or two. Then you turn off your microphone, you leave your speakers on and your video is optional. So it depends on whatever you feel like and whatever you prefer. And then you work on your individual tasks. And then if someone has a question, they turn on their microphone and they ask that question. And then people chat, they give their answers, and they do screen sharing if that's needed, and then they finish and you go on until someone has another question. And so this is a very useful technique for team bonding, for helping the team feel more connected and for addressing some of that social isolation we talked about is an issue. And this is also very helpful for junior people to get on the job training so they can get their questions answered immediately. So this technique is especially helpful for junior people to get connected with the organization and with the team. Let's shift a little bit to the mental health and well-being side of the conversation. You've said a few things that I heard would help social isolation, the lunch or coffee and cookies and fruit the co-working in the office with a mentor, the co-working remotely. Are there other tactics organizations are putting in place to help burnout, which seems to be a big issue for a lot of people? What are companies doing that you're finding helpful to address mental well-being broadly? So I mentioned that the issue that people had from that Cisco survey that most people had better mental well-being to do hybrid work, but the small number, 22% who reported that their work-life balance hadn't improved or even worsened, the number one reason cited was the difficulty of disconnecting from work. And so that is a major issue that I've been working on with my clients. And here the issue is to create clear norms and expectations of what you're supposed to do. 
So that setting up that 11 to 3 p.m. common time is really helpful for this because that's when you're expected to be on and be connected to your work and respond very quickly. Outside of that time, you want to set norms. You want to say something like you're not expected to respond to emails quickly outside of that time. But you don't need to be checking your emails and your Microsoft Teams or Slack messages all the time, which is an unhealthy tendency of a number of people who are unable to disconnect because there's no expectations set. There's no norms set of what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. And especially when the boss, when she responds within like 15 minutes at like 11.32 emails, well, that's a concern, especially when the boss says, well, I sent you that Slack message at like 10.30 p.m., why didn't you respond? I mean, you know, it's obvious why you didn't respond, but then you, that creates norms and expectations of like, oh, do I need to check at midnight before going to sleep or something like that? So that's something that you really want to be careful about and have norms and expectations of saying, we only need to respond quickly between 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. So norms and expectations that help people disconnect and help them know when they should disconnect. There are companies who have no email policies on weekends and others will write the email, but they'll time it to deliver in the morning. My team, when we happen to be on at the same time, whether it's late night on a Friday night and we line up, we do communicate. And hopefully my team does not feel that they're required to work on the weekends. But some organizations do have email free days or meeting free days. Have you tried those and have they met with good results? Once you have a common time, then that's all. I mean, like being available for four hours a day is fine. What some people do is have a sign off in their message saying, well, I'm sending this at 11 p.m., but I don't expect you to respond until your own work time. Other people, like you said, time their set a schedule, their messages for certain times. So one of my clients has a meeting free Wednesday and that seems to work for them. The other thing to do is to have a personal user manual for each person, which shares what time people generally are available and how they prefer to communicate, how they prefer to interact. So having a personal user manual that's widely available to people in your company is a very helpful technique. It's a tool that says that I usually am a morning dove, so I start my workday at 7 a.m., and I finish at you know, 3 p.m. Someone who's night owl will say, well, I start at 11 a.m. and I usually end at 8 p.m. If you know that person will do their last email check at 8 p.m. and they specifically say that in their personal user manual, then you know that, okay, yes, I can get them something late and they'll still check it and they'll at least confirm and respond to me. Do you recommend leaving your calendar open so people can see, I do yoga in the early evenings, I come back and work after that, so that people can see what you're doing, or is that an invasion of personal time? Some people feel uncomfortable with that, so I don't recommend doing that unless someone is willing to do it. If someone wants to, and that's helpful for them, sure. But I find that some people are uncomfortable with that. So you mentioned a personal user's manual. If I created a Maureen user manual so my team knew how to manage me, yeah. where would that live? Would I put it on Teams? That would definitely live in your collaboration tool. So whether that's Teams, whether that's Slack, whether you know, if you use Google Drive, if you use Dropbox, whatever uses your collaboration tool, that's where it would live. And so people can quickly access it. So you can quickly access other people's personal user manuals and you can go and check this out. 
Would you put things like personality type or other kind of communication preferences, not just mode of communication, but keep it brief, no more than three sentences for Samantha, but somebody else wants an explanation? Yes. So I have a template that I have clients use, and it has things like communication preferences, collaboration preferences, like do you prefer to get a long chunk of material? Do you prefer short feedback cycles and collaboration? Or do you want to take some time to think about a topic? Do you prefer to innovate by brainstorming together? So having all of that in the personal user manual is quite helpful. It sounds like that would also really help the feedback process. If I know how you choose, do you want information in advance, during or after, helps me prepare for your feedback session. Yes, it helps definitely with supervisors and their direct reports, yes. And helps with team members when you need to collaborate with somebody else, like especially if you don't know them quite as much and you want to start collaborating with them. So if you're thinking of cross-functional collaborations, those are the ones that tend to produce the biggest innovations in a company. That is the personal user manual enables that, so which is very helpful. Gleb, thank you so much. You've given our listeners several different specific tactics that will really help them be more effective and a lot of data that reinforces your position that hybrid is much more effective than five days a week completely in the office. How would listeners best connect with you and read your content? So my book on this topic is Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams, and they can Google that. It's easily available for purchase. Then they can go to disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash contact. They will contact me there. Happy to talk to anyone about anything that they heard in this podcast. And if they want a copy of my newsletter, they can go to disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. And finally, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm very available there and happy to chat. Beautiful. And I subscribe to your newsletter. Very helpful. Thank you. Great insights consistently delivered. To our listeners, I hope and trust that you have found information very helpful from Gleb. Please like and share this interview with others. Please follow us on LinkedIn, Innovative Leadership Institute, for regular daily tidbits from our podcasts and our blog. Music.